Today we'll be reading from Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. As you're able, would you please stand to honor the reading of his word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me, food, gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. May God honor the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and ask that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding of your word, that we may see the truth, and that the truth would set us free, and that we would be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Well, you know, at some point in our lives, we all prepare for significant days. Usually there are three to five significant moments in a person's life. And when you think about those kinds of days, when you think about those kinds of moments, when you think about the preparation that goes into those days, whether it's a graduation, um, and that's not just the graduation party, it's actually passing the test along the way. When you think about maybe a wedding that you're preparing for, or, or the birth of a, of a new child, or the, the, the significant moments of, of a new job, or whatever the case may be, we spend a lot of our time preparing for a particular moment in time, often, often in our lives. And when you, when you think about that, it's, it's, it's amazing how, how much time and effort and and Preparation goes into a particular moment in our life. But 
You know, as you think about those big moments, as you think about those big moments throughout your lifetime, there's coming a moment when all of our big moments combined will, will even pale in comparison to a moment that we all will face. And that, that moment is what the Bible refers to as the last day. And the thing about that day is that all of us will be there. All of us will be there, and all of us will, will experience what we call the final judgment. And it's a big moment because it's, it's at that time where eternity will be fixed permanently. The thing about that day is that even though it's coming for all of us, very few adequately prepare for it. Some even reject the reality of that day. Say, there's not a, there's not a last day, there's not a day coming, there, there's no such thing, why should we even work ourselves up over it? Others will, will know that it's coming, but they deny it's coming in the way that they live. They will say, well, sure, there's a future judgment, there's a final day, but they will deny the reality of that day just as they conduct themselves through everyday life. Few people, even in the church, I would say, few people adequately prepare for this last and final day. So my hope and my prayer for each of us on this day, as we open the word of God, as we hear the the scriptures from Matthew chapter 25 is that as we are confronted with the reality of that great and final day is that we would be properly prepared. That's my hope and prayer as we hear these verses this morning that, that we would hear the reality of what we will one day face and that we will take advantage of the time the Lord has given us to adequately prepare for that moment. Jesus tells us here that this day will be a day of separation. This is where the line will be permanently drawn in the sand, if you will. And it will be a day when eternity will be sealed for all people, every person. And so as we anticipate that great day of separation, as we, as we face the reality of that day, we should make proper preparations and evaluate our lives in light of it. So let's do that this morning as we consider this text, and specifically as we see three observations about that great and final day that should stir every single person to some kind of action and response to the Lord today. Three observations about this great and final day that should stir us to action. The first uh, observation that we see is that it is an inescapable day. It's an inescapable day. If you read verses 31 through 33, we're told that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Friends, there's, there's no question that this day is coming. 
There's no question of the certainty of this day. And, and when you hear this language, again, it's, it's yet another reference to the second coming of our Lord. We've heard similar language before, in, even in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 13, verses 41 through 43. Back in Matthew chapter 24, in verse 31, when we're told that he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and gather his people from one end of the earth to the other. In fact, in chapter 24, it's there that we're told that all of the tribes of the earth will mourn on this day. Here we're reminded on that day that all nations will be gathered before him. It's an inescapable day. It's an inescapable time that we will all experience. Now, when you consider this great and final day, when you when you consider the, the reality of the judgment that is coming, there's some important things that we need to consider. In fact, some, some people would actually say that there are several judgments to come, that it's not just one judgment, but there's several, and they would see several different judgments throughout the Scripture. I think a straightforward reading of the Scripture seems to indicate that all of these judgments are one and the same. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If you turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, this is what's referred to as the great white throne judgment. We're told there, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the second, this is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, the reality, whether you see one judgment or multiple judgments, the point is still the same. All of us, at some point in the future, will stand to give account to the Lord, and we will be separated, some to eternal life and some to eternal separation in hell from the Lord. Listen, no one gets a hall pass for this one. It's inescapable. There's no exemption. You know, you think about tax day, right, coming up, or it's just gone uh, in, in the past, back in April. Tax day always comes, and, and even as big of a deal as tax day is, you can still file an exemption or, or an extension, right, and, and have more time. You could buy more time to get your act together for tax day. Friends, there's no extensions when that day comes. You won't be able to stand before the Lord and say, I just need a little bit more time here, Lord. Can, can I have an extension? That will not be possible. Friend, I just ask you, in light of that inescapable day, how will you fare? How will you fare on that day? Because, listen, God is a righteous judge, and he is a good judge, and therefore this day must happen. God will call sinners to account. He is a God who will bring justice. And think about that. You and I will stand before the Lord who is both omniscient, that means he knows everything, and he's omnipresent, so he's always present. And so he knows every 
everything there is to know about you and about me. Everything. He knows even the deepest motives of your hearts, the desires of your heart. He, he knows everything about you, and it's that one that you will stand before to give accounts. And it's inescapable. It's an inescapable day. Friend, you may think this is far-fetched or far-removed, but you and I both need to anticipate that this day is inevitable. It's not one that you should procrastinate. It's an inescapable day. But number two, it's also an illuminating day. An illuminating day. In fact, if you read verses 34 through 45, you see how Jesus will call us to account. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he gives some criteria there, but, but you see, and then he goes on in verse 41, then he, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, the following, the, the, this passage has been taken in, a, in, in several different ways. You, you've heard this passage before, quoted. In fact, Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25 is one of the most commonly quoted texts that you will hear even non-Christians quote. And some have concluded that what is taught here is a works-based salvation. Feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and etc. Therefore you do that, you do that and therefore you get eternal life. Others have quoted especially verses 35 through 40 so much in order to support matters of social justice that we have no idea that it's in the context of final judgment. I mean, how often have you heard these verses quoted to support a, a mercy ministry? Which I'm all for mercy ministries, I'll talk about that in a minute. But you have no idea that it's in the context of final judgments. So what is Jesus saying in these verses well, first of all, he is describing the separation of believers and unbelievers, and he's using similar criteria to make his separation. Now, this imagery would have been common to folks in this day because throughout Palestine and the villages throughout Palestine, sheep and goats would often graze in the same fields throughout the day, but at night they would be separated, especially for the sake of the goats, because they needed to be warm. But during the day, they would be grazing together. And so Jesus uses that imagery, which would have been common to the people of that day, so they would have understood even the, the, the visual image of this separation. He uses it as a picture to describe the future separation of Christians from non-Christians. And so this is how it goes. Sheep will be on, put on the right. By the way, right, the right hand was often a, a place of honor. And so the sheep, descriptive of Christians, the people of God, will inherit the kingdom. And then the goats will be put on the left, and they will be cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, it's, it's a common question for, for us to ask in evangelism, for example. You've probably heard this question before. People use it. They will say, you know, if you were to stand before God right now and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? James Kennedy made that very popular in evangelism explosion years ago. And so it's a question that's often used in some form or the other. If, 
you were to stand before God today and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? It, it, let me just tell you, it's, it's really good for you to have a good answer to that. <laughs> and if you were to say something like this, because I'm a sinner, but Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and died upon the cross for my sin, and I have placed my hope and trust in him to forgive me of sin so that I can be reconciled to you and, and have everlasting life. If you say something like that, that's a right answer. Okay? Now, obviously it needs to engage the heart, and reality needs to be there, but that's a right answer. But what if he were to ask a follow-up question? James Kennedy didn't give us this one. What if he were to say... What is the evidence that you have placed your trust in my son? What is the evidence? What's the proof? And that's what Jesus is addressing here. He's addressing the proof. He's addressing the evidence in verses 35 through 40. This is what one looks like that has been marked by saving faith. And so we need to have a proper understanding of this text. He is not teaching a salvation by works. He is not teaching, be kind and inherit salvation. You know, God's motto is not the public school, work hard, be nice, right? And you get the kingdom. That's not what he's teaching. We know that salvation is a gift of God's grace. He's pointing to the fact that our faith is a living and active faith. It's living and active, and it proves itself through our generosity and service. Not to mention that he says of the righteous in verse 34 that they will inherit the kingdom. An inheritance is not something earned. It is given. So it's definitely not teaching a salvation by works. Now we know that there are many examples that we could point to in other texts where Jesus highlights evidence of saving faith. But here in Matthew chapter 25, he highlights the, what we see in verses 35 through 40, the, the feeding of the hungry, the giving drink to the thirsty, the welcoming of the stranger, the clothing of the naked, the visiting of the sick, and those who are in prison. Now, these are verses we probably have heard used oftentimes, but I think they need some clarification because they're often abused. Jesus identifies these actions, feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, etc. And we all have, have typically referred to these kinds of actions as mercy ministry, and that's in fact what they are. They're mercy ministry. There's been many a ministry propped up under the banner of Matthew 25 that are mercy ministries, serving the poor, reaching out to the downtrodden, homeless, etc., etc., and while these ministries are good and biblically warranted, I don't believe Jesus is particularly saying that ministry to all poor, ministry to all naked, all suffering, is ministry to him. In this particular text, he's not talking about everyone who is poor or sick or suffering. He's talking about a particular group of those who are poor and sick and suffering. I've read this passage many times over, heard it many times over, and we get the impression, I guarantee if I did a straw poll this morning, most people in this room would say, well, he's talking about everybody that suffers. But he's not. 
Verse 40. They ask in verse 38, well, when did we see you a stranger? And when did we see you sick or in prison? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. My brothers modifies the least of these. These are Christian people suffering. These are believers, fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord that are going through difficult days. Galatians 6 verse 10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Way back in Matthew chapter 10 verse 40, Jesus is there talking about the rewards and how he will make, how he will give rewards in the, in the, in the future and and he talks about that in verse 42, and he says, And whoever gives one of the little, these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, the little ones, modifying, because he is a disciple, modifying the little ones, then he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus here is saying in Matthew 25 that part of the evidence of whether or not you have true saving faith is how you minister to and serve the suffering who are part of you. James chapter 2, verse 14. James asked the question, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Answer, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Who is that? A brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. And one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving him the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Plus, further proof that Jesus is talking about the people of God in this context is that he says, for I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was a stranger, I was naked, I was sick, I was in prison. Jesus is identifying through his union with his people to his people. And it's his people that represent him on earth. And so he's talking about this union that he has with his people. Now, let me just address the issue of mercy ministries to all people, because some of you are about to panic, right? I believe very much that the church should and must engage in mercy ministries to everyone. Galatians 6.10, let us do good to everyone. We have a special obligation to the church, but we're to do good to everyone. So I believe the church should and must engage in mercy ministries, even to the lost. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't encourage work over at the mission. I wouldn't encourage us to go to Baltimore in a few weeks because... A large part of what we will be doing is mercy ministries. I wouldn't encourage us to participate in warm during the week of Thanksgiving as we house the homeless. I wouldn't encourage any of that if I didn't believe the church did not have an obligation to all people. In fact, I would say to those that that say, there, there are some out there that say the church should not reach out to the poor and suffering in the world, especially the lost world, because of how they take advantage of the church. I would say that that's a bad argument, and they actually deny the heart of God if they say that. I think it's, the point I'm simply trying to make here is that we need to prop up our ministries with the right text. That's all I'm saying. 
Luke 6, verses 27 through 36, is the right text to prop up mercy ministries to all peoples. That's where Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. Can it be any clearer? Everyone. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, you also do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. That is mercy ministry to all. So all I'm saying is let's get the right chapter and verses in the right context, supporting the right kinds of ministry. That's all I'm saying You say, well, you're making a big deal out of it. Well, I think it's important because this is a passage that I believe has often been misunderstood and misapplied. Let's use the right chapters and verses to make sure that we're propping the right ministries up. We are called to love the near and the far. We should never say that Christians should not focus so much on their own, especially when Jesus makes it a huge criteria about the the final judgment. Nor should we say we should never do social ministries. That's just as much an error. We should love the near and the far. But we're in Matthew chapter 25 today, so we're talking about the near, those who are part of us who are suffering. And so Jesus is saying is that your heart will be revealed on that day by by how much you care for suffering disciples. Particularly, I think he's talking about those who are serving in itinerant ministries and how people would often persecute them and how the church would respond to that. Listen, we are called as the church to move towards suffering. We're called to move towards suffering people and certainly suffering Christians. We're not called to ignore it. We're not called to avoid it. You know, I think this passage is so hard for us to get in, in our affluent culture because we enjoy certain freedoms. But there's a big part of our family that suffers much throughout the world. There's a family that suffer even here. There's a big part of our family that suffers much. Remember Jesus said in John, in the Gospel of John, that the way that many will know we are his disciples is by how much we love one another. And this is a manifestation of that love and how we're called to sacrificially love those who are suffering in our families, whether through tsunamis, earthquakes, Ebola, the need for clean water, refugees, the persecuted, and on and on and on we could go. How we reach out to those kinds of people is a reflection of our hearts. Friend, what will the final judgment reveal about your concern and care for the suffering church? Notice that he uses the same criteria for the unrighteous. Those that demonstrate their faith is alive by how they serve those among them, will be rewarded. But those who could care less about the suffering people of God ultimately proves, as James says, that their faith is dead. 
Friend, be careful. You might be all wrapped up in Christian things. You may be good at debating certain kinds of theology or, or apologetics. You, you might even serve in the church. But if you never give thought to your suffering brother and sister, that is a reflection of the heart you have. If you never think about those or pray for those or help support the refugee or the persecuted, it's a reflection of your heart. In fact, what Jesus is saying is that if you, even if you look Christian and everything else, but you do not reach out to the suffering in the world, you may be going to hell. That's what he says in this passage. He doesn't mince words about the reality and certainty of hell. It's a place for the cursed. It's a terrible place reserved for the devil and his angels. It's a place of eternal fire and punishment. It's a place, as Matthew 25 verse 30 says, of outer darkness where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some say, well, surely God would never do that. How could a good God be so cruel? Friend, the fact of the matter is that there will not be a single person in hell that does not deserve to be there. God is good, but he is also just. He is righteous, and he will by no means pardon the guilty on their own terms. He has given the means for which they can be pardoned through the gift of his son if they would merely look to him and trust in him and be saved. So what we're told here is those who continue in opposition and hostility to Christ and his church ultimately reveal the truth of their hearts and will one day be cursed eternally. You know, they, they look upon the suffering of those in Nepal or the horrendous persecution that Christians are facing throughout the world in northern Africa and Syria. And they feel nothing. Feel nothing. In fact, they watch another ISIS beheading on their TV screen, and they're more concerned with the dent in the corner than they are with the person being persecuted. This day will be an illuminating day. What will it reveal about your own heart? What will it illuminate in your life? But number three, it will be an irreversible day. Verse 46, he compares the righteous to the unrighteous in previous verses. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food and did all of these things and you did this as you did it to the least of these brothers, as your own brothers and sisters, you did it to me and he says, those who were cursed and prepared for the eternal fire, they didn't do these things. And then he answers in verse 46, he says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Building on language we find all the way back in Daniel chapter 12, Jesus affirms the permanency of this final day. It will be much too late to change then. And listen, friend, there, there's no purgatory mentioned here. There, there's no purgatory where you go and, and, and hope that you can get out. There are only two types of people that will spend eternity in one of two destinations. 
They're the sheep and the goats, the righteous, the unrighteous, the saved and the unsaved. And there's heaven and there's hell. And you will be in one place or the other forever. And on that final day, your judgment will be irreversible. Do not miss this. Don't get to that day and say, well, somebody didn't tell me. For some of you, it could be that you get to that day and even this message is now ringing clearly in your ears on that day. It will be too late. You say, why didn't I listen? Why didn't I take Jesus' words more seriously? Friend, it will be too late on that day. You know, our culture is so used to second and third and fourth and fifth chances. And our school teachers and our parents don't help sometimes. I mean, how many times do... This is a, we could talk about this under a parenting sermon, but how many times do our kids come to us and there's appropriate reasons why we should give second chances? You know, we get, you know, they come and they plead for mercy and we give them more mercy. We, they plead for a second chance, we give them another chance. How many times have you gone to a teacher and said, can I just have one more day to write that paper? Just one more day? I've had 20 days and wasted it, but can I have one more day? Can I take that test tomorrow? Can you be merciful on me? I've had a rough week. And if you've got a gracious teacher, they will say sure. Friend, even God is a God of second chances. And he is patient. He is very patient. But there's coming a day when there will be no more second chances. And there will be no more patience. And justice will be given. Today is that day of second chance. Today is the day of his, his, his patience. There, there will be no negotiating on judgment day. There will, there will be no negotiation. When that day comes, there, there will be no last minute maneuvering. There will be no filing for an extension. There, there will be none of that. There will be separation, the saved and the lost, the righteous and the unrighteous, the sheep and the goats. J.C. Ryle said this. He said the state of things after the judgment is changeless and without end. Did you hear that? It is changeless irreversible, and without end, eternal. As surely, he says, as God is eternal, so surely is heaven an endless day without night and hell an endless night without day. Friend, this day is coming. And it's not a day you can mark an exact moment on your calendar. It will be unexpected. It's not a day that, that you, you need to mess around with. And you won't get to that day and, and be able to negotiate. Today is the day of salvation. 
You may be sitting here and you may be thinking, well, let me ponder this some more. Friend, you're not promised another breath. We live in a day when things can be changed now, when repentance is possible now and Christ is accessible now. Have you turned to him? Have you placed your faith in him? God is an amazingly gracious God because all of us deserve to be a goat. But he's saying, if you'll simply look and trust in my son, your sins will be pardoned. You'll be clothed in righteousness. You'll be forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. You will be welcomed into my family, adopted as one of my own. You'll be a joint heir with Christ. And all the blessings of heaven will be yours. But it's only found in Christ. Friend, would you turn and trust in him today? If you do not trust it in Christ, would, would you stop right now and realize the, the reality that this day is coming? And would you place your faith and your hope in Jesus? Because that is your means of grace. He is your hope. He is the provision that God has granted to sinners. So that if you would look and trust in him on that great and final day, it will not be weeping and gnashing of teeth for you. But it will be a moment that marks an eternity of great and endless joy. Here's the reality. You can suffer the wrath of God for eternity in hell. Or you can look to the one who took the wrath of God on himself at the cross. And trust in him. And be saved. And cleansed. And made his own forever. Friend, why wait? That day will come. It will be inescapable. It will be illuminating. And it will be irreversible. And Christ is your only hope. Look to him and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, what what an amazing reality that we all face. Lord, none of us want to go to hell. We make light of it in our culture. We talk about hell as if it's some kind of fun eternity, some eternal party. But Father, the reality is it's a terrible place. God, would you, would you help our hearts to realize in the midst of our busy and chaos-filled lives, that all of this is building to a moment when we will stand before you and have to give account 
Lord, how we serve those who are suffering among us will count on that day. Our works will be acknowledged on that day, not as a means of our salvation, but as a reflection of of what has truly happened in our hearts. Lord, Lord, would would you search the depths of our hearts today? Would you remove the pride that is present? Would you help us to take a a serious evaluation of our hearts? Would you help help us to take serious that there is coming a day of final judgments? And there is this great separation that will happen. God, would you have mercy upon us? Would you forbid, Lord, that we would be counted among the goats? And Lord, would you pour out your mercy and grace in our lives so that we could see, that we could see our need, so that we could see the hope that's before us in Christ, so that we can cry out in faith, to Jesus. Lord, this is not something we should take lightly. We, this is not something that we should ignore or to postpone. Father, would you call us to yourself? Would you, would you bring illumination in our hearts now so that we can see now what changes need to happen? For that day it will be too late, Lord. God, you know the hearts of your people. You know the circumstances and the realities of every single person in this room. You know the eternal destiny right now of every person in this room. You know who in this room is counted among the sheep and the goats right now, Lord. You know that. And right now is the the opportunity for for repentance and faith to happen. Right now is, is when hope can be established and our future destiny changed. God, would you move in our lives? Would you save those who are lost? Would you give certainty to those who are saved? And Father, would you do a work that we need desperately right now in light of that coming day? Father, move in our hearts and change us. We pray this in Christ's name.